Welcome to Return to Roshar, where we speak again the ancient oath by going through Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight books and put everything into a wider Cosmere context. So a spoiler warning is in effect for every Cosmere book published at the time of recording, and that means up to Rhythm of War for now. Hi, I am Murta. Today I'm joined by Kevin and Anna. Hi, I'm Kevin. Today we get to discuss the overarching theme that we see in the prologues for the first four books and will be replicated in the fifth book as well. And that is the night that Gavilar was assassinated. Yes, we are going to talk about Gavilar's death a lot on this podcast because we decided that each perspective that we get to see is worth its own podcast and its own podcasting team. So you will hear from different people of our team talking about different people from Roshar. Seeing Gavila die isn't that nice. Yes, each perspective unlocks a new piece of the puzzle. And in this little episode, we try to put as much of the puzzle together as we know. Exactly. Yep. And to note too, so as of this point in recording, we have up to Rhythm of War prologue. So we have one from each book so far. We will also be discussing chapter 77 of Rhythm of War because that actually occurs on this same evening as well. It's a viewpoint from Venley and we'll be talking about that a bit more in depth during the timeline breakdown. But we'll be also discussing that today. Yes, I was very, very confused when I read that in Rhythm of War. I was like, why are we going back to that scene? It's not a prologue. What's happening here? I almost missed it too the first time I didn't realize it was that night because it actually says, of course, seven and a half years ago, or I think they increased the number of years ago because the point of present that we're at at this point has also moved forward. So it doesn't just say seven years ago, it says like seven and a half or eight years ago. So it threw me off and I almost didn't think it was the same night the first time I read it, I think. Brendan is so organized that he can just, he just knows at, at every time in the story how long something ago was. He must have a really, really great continuity editor for that. I mean, there's, it's so much information to try to keep aligned. Yeah, I'm sure he's got a few people on, on that type of thing, at least. And it is seven and a half years ago. You were right. Oh, whew. My credentials are safe. At the start of Words of Radiance, it's six years ago, right? What was it at the beginning of Way of Kings? Was it five? The beginning of Way of Kings is 4,500 years ago. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. After Zeth's chapter, it says five years later. So Way of King starts five years after the assassination. What's afraid Radiant starts six, right? Okay. Kevin, do you want to yes. lead us through the timeline of the feast? Sure. Because you did the research for this. I did do quite a bit of reading in an afternoon. So the actual first chronological point that we see for the feast night is the chapter 77 from Rhythm of War. So the first events that we see from that evening, we see Venli and Ulim sneaking around the palace. So as a reminder, Ulim is the void sprint that was given to Venli by Axendwith in the city of Narok. So that's how the Venli story first got started in terms of, you know, that was who got the ball rolling in terms of starting to galvanize the Parshendi towards accepting storm form and accepting forms of power, kind of breaking the culture at that level. So that's Ulim's role in this, and he's really a huge manipulator of Venli. He takes advantage of her, at first, you know, her youth, because I believe she's 
only 10 years old when she first is given him or around that point so he takes advantage of her naivete her ambition and really kind of uses her to jumpstart this entire plan to get the Everstorm actually on Roshar. So again, that was a recap on Ulim. So the first thing that we see in that chapter 77, we see Venli and Ulim in the palace on the night of the assassination, specifically looking for the bag of gems. So that's actually what they're there to do, is they're there to pick up the gems who are apparently left by accident with somewhere. So they're looking through the palace and they find a note which, you know, it indicates that she's been rumbled. You know, she's been found out. She indicates that someone else, possibly of terrorist descent, figured her out because her name implies that she may be a terrorist outer worlder. Do you guys have any remembrance of whether she was or not? She's wearing a series of bracelets and rings and things like that, which makes people think that she is a Farukamist. That's right. That's what it is. Yeah. So it's implied that she may have been found out by someone from her own planet and she essentially leaves a note behind saying i can't help you you know i'm out effectively and so ulim abandons venli at that point and she gets found by a group of guards and they bring her to a guard room where nail finds her and that's kind of the first time we see where nail realizes that Void Spren are back on Roshar. He sees Ulam, he can't be hidden from him, and this is the moment where he realizes that he's starting to fail, and maybe he doesn't even accept it at this point, but this is like the first crack in his perfect world of, I'm killing all of these budding radiance, and therefore the desolation can never happen again. So he's very mad by all of this. I'll pause for any jump-ins if you want to, but there's I can just keep going if I need to. You just keep going. I just I think if we want to say something, we can just jump in. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. So at this point, Nail is, is confronting them, and he's extremely angry that Ulim is there. And this is where they actually plant the idea for them to purchase Zeth to use him for the assassination. He knows he can't do it. He has no legal justification. That's his hang-up. That's his thing. He can't do it. So he bypasses it with his fuzzy gray logic of the law and he says here i will give you the means of getting a tool to accomplish the same job so he tells them about where to purchase zeth in the marketplace that he will basically do this job for them so that's where that whole plan is first seated and this is you know it's alluded to in eshenai's chapter but this is the first time that we're getting the whole background into how they actually even knew to purchase Zeth. It wasn't just some coincidence. It was planned and very deliberate that they were sent this way. So later on, I'm going to be very brief about these descriptions because the chapter 77 episode will go much further into depth into this entire chapter. But we can allude from this later on that this discussion led Clade and Venli to go purchase Zeth. It's referenced in Eshenai's chapter that there is a voice that speaks to the rhythms that tells him to purchase Zeth in some capacity. So I have theorized that that could have been Ulim in some capacity, you know, more trickery there. You know, we don't know how much more could be given at that point. But that's one thing I inferred maybe from this deep dive into tying all of these things together. So the next kind of pivotal moment, and it's the moment that really ties all of the real prologues together, is we start seeing Parshendi unloading their drums. It's seen in every single chapter, specifically Eshenai's chapter, she's there not helping them, but she's just wandering the palace, and she even says, you know, this is just what she does. People have, you know, no expectations of her otherwise, she just gets to do this. So we see her passing by in the lower levels, all of the Parshendi, working with unloading the drums first. So that's the first instance we see of that. Looping back to Navani's chapter, though, that's the next 
sequential moment in time. So we see Navani searching for Gavilar, and she finds him in her study in conference with Nail and Kalek. Nail, obviously, as we mentioned before, is mad that Ulam is there. He does not like that they have been starting to accomplish their goals as the Sons of Honor. And we see the interaction between Gavilar and Navani at this point as well. Gavilar is kind of an asshole to her in general in this entire chapter, and it's the first time we get exposed to this side of him. But from this chapter onwards, I think that it's very much cemented in the viewpoint of Gavilar that he is not the king that we assumed he was, and there was a lot more bad and negative to the sides that we never got to see of him. After this point, we can infer that after Navani burns the glyph and returns to the feast, uh, the feast preparations even, the next sequential moment would be Gavilar meeting with the Sons of Honor, including Amaram. So this is something he mentioned offhand to Nail and Kalek that he would be doing later on that evening. He'll be meeting with the Sons of Honor. And this is that meeting. And this is the meeting that Eshenai actually stumbles into. In the meeting, there were described by her two officers. One of them is Amaram two women, and one old man, and to my knowledge, none of them have been identified at this point. Eshenai, once she's in this meeting, Gavilar dismisses the others and gives Eshenai the Void Spren gemstone. That's kind of the pivotal moment in her viewpoint where she decides to take this knowledge that he's trying to bring back their gods. This is the first time she realizes that, and she goes to the Five to tell them about this, and this is how he accidentally set the plan in motion to kill himself. You know, if he hadn't shown Eshenai that, I'm sure they found some way to get the ball rolling in terms of an assassination, but he basically signed his own death at that point by giving her that gemstone. She was not corrupt at that point by any of the Void Sprint intentions. She was purely just reacting on tradition. They don't want their gods back, and they never did, and him trying to do that is an act of war. Gavilar understands maybe something of the fuse in the past wars because of his knowledge now, but he doesn't understand the sink and why they are the way. Yeah, he definitely has assumptions. He assumes that why wouldn't they, just like us, why wouldn't they want to return to their version of Radiance, you know, having powers, having access to the surges, why wouldn't they want that back, no matter the cost, and he's basically assuming that they must want the same things as him. And that obviously results in Eshenai bringing the Voidsprint back to the Five. So at this point in the timeline of the evening, this is actually the start of the feast. This is the next moment that we would observe, is the start of the feast. Midway through the feast, this is when Yasna leaves to go meet with Lys, the assassin. Outside the feast, she bumps into Gavilar and Amaram briefly. This is post their meeting, of course. And then after this is when she first has her experience falling into Shadesmar, and then she comes back out shortly after. At the same time, uh, Delinar is dancing on the table at this point, right? Or has he already fallen over? The drunkenness has definitely started to ensue as far as him. The drumming hasn't started yet, so I'd be curious to see. Is that what Zeth observes, uh, Drunken Dalinar? I think so. Yep, then I think that at that moment, because as Yasna's gone, this is when Zeth first starts to leave. So we see that from his perspective and from Eshenai's perspective, she sees him moving across the room to leave. And we see his perspective, of course, leaving the feast. You know, he sees Nail and Kalak talking to Elokar for some reason. That's a one. He indicates that Yasna's already gone, so that's how we can place this event after that fact. And then he also sees Jezrean in the Beggar Feast. So there is just so much going on the moment that he decides to leave. And of course, Dalinar is a bit drunk and dancing on the tables and, you know, causing a bit of a ruckus. Part of the party. Oh, yeah. 
without even knowing it, he had no idea. So the drumming that we were waiting for all the setup for, this is happening now. Ashina is drumming as he leaves, and then this is when the attack starts. While the attack is going on, this is when Yasna meets with Liss, after she comes back into the regular world. After she meets with Liss, she sees Nail and Kalak very briefly before finding the destruction left behind Zeth. She sees Gavilar right at the moment right before he falls to his death, and actually gets to view Zeth walking down the walls, and she is aware of the fact that there are surges being used in this day. You know, she's obviously experiencing it for the first time herself, but she's also witnessing it for the first time as well. So she's obviously one of the more knowledgeable and basically could be Cosmere aware. Like, she probably could have gotten there all on her own if given enough time. But she's, you know, at this point, probably one of the most knowledgeable people we see. And she's just kind of having to take this all in that not only are these powers returning, but they're the same thing that caused the death of her father, so she doesn't have the sullied view of him quite as much as Navani rightly does, so there's definitely some idolization still there. So after he falls, the Parshendi elders approach her at that point as well, and that includes Clade, the guy who purchased Zeth, and two others, and they confess their role in the assassination, they indicate that it was all of them, and those three are strung up, they're executed at that point, and that was their accepted role, was to be the, what's the right word for the that? The fall guys. The Fall Guys, effectively, yes. Even though it still led to many years of war, regardless, that was at least an attempt to assuage maybe the guilt they still felt over having to do it. So at the bottom of the tower where Gavilar had fallen, at this moment, you know, Zeth is obviously standing over his dying body, and Gavilar gives him his final words, a message for Dalinar, to find the most important words a man can say, but he also gives him one of the gemstones observed in Navani's chapter, specifically one containing anti-void light. And we learn that as well later on in Rhythm of War. I don't have the exact timestamp, but there is a moment where we discover that the gemstone hidden by Zeth was the anti-void light one that Navani began to have researchers looking into. It's the one that eventually blew up, so that was the same gemstone. It was her first observation of that phenomenon. So it made its way, however he preserved it in a cave for all those years to eventually come back in this book. And that is basically the latest point that we have in the evening up to the, at, at this time. You know, Navani searches his body for it and she can't find those same gems that she had seen earlier in the night. But, you know, she makes a good face of it and puts her own gemstones in his bag to make it look like she wasn't trying to, you know, loot his corpse or anything like that. But... <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. It sounds pretty straightforward when you put it together like this. I know that it took me... I think uh, at the time that I read Rhythm of War, I had figured out mostly what happens at the feast. But I remember that during Oathbringer, I was very confused what happens when. So thank you. Oh, of course, yeah. It was definitely something that I feel like it's... You try to mentally picture it and you can almost put the pieces together. But it is nice just to kind of spell it out and kind of nail it down for your own sanity as well, just knowing what events happen when. And Brandon, of course, leaves great clues. You know, he leaves the pieces and the breadcrumbs for you to find. So they're there if you can find them, but it's not always as as blatant as, as we would like with, you know, leaving clues. So there is enough there for him and for us to hopefully get a good idea of how everything happened and when it happened. Yes, his timeline must be super detailed so that he can do this with every new book, having people spot other people. 
And it, it turns out it makes sense, right? We could write, like rebuild a model of the palace and have little Lego figurines walk through it and it would work, right? Absolutely. And that just, you know, that's the level of detail that you get when you get into these books. And it's something that obviously keeps me coming back. I, I really do appreciate that. It's not something he has to do. He could just, you know, rely on the, you know, unreliable narrator or leave things up to chance or unknown or just unanswered. And he puts the work in on his end to make it so that there is a real answer when he can give it. And it, it's very rewarding for a reader to be able to figure out based on what he's left behind. Yes, yeah, so the next book we'll see from Gavilar's perspective. So a lot of the holes we have at this point will be filled, I think, because he is basically central to most of the interactions. Of course, the most important one where he gets killed, but also before that he meets with a lot of people. So just the full conversations with the Sons of Honor and him with the Heralds got to be a lot of information themselves. So looking forward to it. Yes. He was up to something. And we'll figure it out exactly. one day. What I missed at the timeline, I don't know if he talked about it and I just missed it or if he didn't put it, is oh, sure. at what point does Sadius dress up as Gavilar? Oh, that is a good point. And it actually isn't explicitly stated. It must have happened after uh, the meeting with Yasna. So we see actually Tirim, the guard there at the same time, who's still in the shard plate at that point. And we see Sadius, so in that interaction where where Yasna sees both Amaram and Gavilar, Sadius also passes by at that point. So they're both, they're all three in the general area, as well as the shark. So plate. do we think it's like a it's, a, it's an emergency protocol? So the moment the guards start screaming in the halls and it's clear that there's an attack, they go into... It feels like a contingency. Like, this happens, you do this. Yeah, get into the, get the king out plan, and that means have a distraction, have a decoy who's most likely to get killed and get the king in his shard plate because he's not in his shard plate before that right they must have shoved him into that yeah because we know it's a process yeah that is very true like knowing how long because adolin's always talking about how long it takes to put the armor on but so there must have been some level of effort that had to go in either having a different set of plate ready or you know peeling it off of Tyrim, who was the one who usually wears it for him it feels like it would take as long as putting on regular armor you know the stuff is heavy until you get it on you i mean so what 10 minutes something like that at least like he was just just got shoved into that and walked out the door and Sizaf was right there yeah, interesting. So sometime in between bumping into or passing Yasna, the, you know, there must have been... The attack is actually underway as she's leaving. You know, that's when the first things are happening. So she happened to get the last words of her dad right there and there. But the timing of that is definitely interesting in terms of trying to figure out how they got the armor on him as quickly as they did. While we are talking about all these prologue chapters in a row, isn't it beautiful to see the titles one after another? It's like to kill, to question, to weep, and to pretend. That Yeah, I don't think I realized that. <laughs> I think I realized that only when we were preparing for this. And I read all the prologues one after another. I realized, oh, there's a pattern to the titles. Because I usually, I realize that I skip chapter titles when I read. I never know. Yeah, I tend to it's as well. It's better in audiobooks because they tell you, obviously. Yes, but uh, yeah, it's um, what everyone does. Seth kills, Yasna questions, Eshenai weeps, and Navani pretends. So, what is the prologue of the next book called? Ooh, that's a good, oh, that's a good thing to wonder. Die. Oh. To die. <laughs> to, to die. Plot, <laughs> to Oof. To conquer? No. To unite? Mm. Mm. 
Bentley's doesn't fit with any pattern, but I like that chapter name. The proper legality. That fits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, with that question, how will the prologue of the next book be called? I think we can leave everyone and um, look forward to the in-depth discussion of each viewpoint that we're going to do. Which one uh, are you most interested in, guys? Man, I, there's something about that Navani chapter. I just can't put my finger on it. Ugh. Are you asking which viewpoint in the general book we're looking forward to most? Which viewpoint of the products does intrigue you the most? Oh, intrigues me the most? I I picked Navani on purpose. It, it intrigues me for sure. Nobody who listens to this podcast knows that you did that yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's future. Well, I picked Navani and I picked it because <laughs> it's the most interesting to me. <laughs> They're all great. I was trying to tease the episodes to come and you guys are not <laughs> helping I'm, I'm guess i'm bad at promotion i'll get the hang of it <laughs> i think the zeth one will be good i've heard that you know there's a really solid crack team on the zeth team that i think that they're going to pull it off in a similarly grandiose way as the assassin himself. i think that the zeth chapter is very interesting because at the time when you first read that it had to work but now we have so much additional information that you can read it in a totally different way even in re-listens after I've been up to date with the books, there were things I I'd never even noticed before. All the very like the fact that the two heralds were actually talking to Elokar, I'd never noticed that before. But like, what are they talking to him about? What do they have to do with him? What are they questioning him for? Is it because he's attracting Lysbren at that early? Who knows? But who knows indeed? Well, Brandon does, so let's Brandon maybe let's keep our fingers crossed that he'll uh, be around long enough to tell us everything. Oh come on. We would be around long enough. He's a young man. Yeah. But he has uh, bitten off quite a piece yes. with this world that he has created. If anyone can do it, it's him. Oh, yeah. I don't have a lot of faith in a lot of... Uh, even respecting the creative process and kind of knowing that it can't be easy to write a world as expansive as they try to do sometimes, but I have a lot of respect for his commitment and his kind of just sticking to de deadlines and just actually producing content, you know, it, as readily as he does it's it's not easy but he somehow does it and i respect him a lot in, t in that respect and i enjoy his work immensely as a result yes looking at you george rr martin <laughs> i think you're the first ever to have done this comparison i'm looking at him right now oh <laughs> george the beardy man himself <laughs> yeah but but seriously i mean brandon sanderson has told people before that when they start reading the Stormlight Archive, that they should trust him. And it's not only that we trust him to make sense in the end, we also trust him to deliver, right? Because at this point, if he says book comes out 2023, I just assume it will, because this man is so reliable. I thank him for that. He's got it organized down to uh, machine-like efficiency. The sender bots are working like clockwork. So, Murta, do you want to kick us out of this with an outro? I can give you an outro. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. As always, journey before destination, and we hope you'll return to Roshar with us again next time. <laughs> <laughs>